start today with something a little exciting in a very meta sort of way? You had no way of knowing this, but a few weeks ago we passed something that, for me at least, was an important milestone. Because when I first had the idea to do this podcast, I sat down and started outlining everything I knew about Arizona history, and basically how I thought the story would unfold, how many episodes I would need to cover certain topics, etc. When the podcast got up and going, that initial plan worked great for about four episodes. After that, though, my estimates were totally off. It took us nine episodes, not two, to get through the Spanish period, and an additional ten episodes, instead of one, to get up to and through the Mexican-American War. I was learning so much myself and new things to talk about and exactly how long it took me to cover events that the original plan had to go out the window. The reason I bring it up now is that when I recently looked at that laughably out-of-date plan, it had an outline for only 33 episodes, including one-off episodes not tied to the main narrative. And you may have noticed that Yeah, we kind of hit the 33-episode mark just a few weeks ago and had just barely made it to 1860. So that plan, aside from listing things that I simply must cover going forward, is now officially defunct. And I couldn't be happier. It means we are now kind of discovering things together and that this historical road trip we're on is richer and more interesting than anticipated. Which is never a bad thing. Just please don't ask me how many episodes it will take to get to the end. Obviously, I have no idea. For now, let's just enjoy the ride. With that being said, I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 36, The Bascom Affair, Part 3, How Not to Negotiate. When we left off last week, 2nd Lieutenant George Nicholas Bascom had confronted Cochise over the abduction of 12-year-old Felix Ward. The boy had been stolen by Penal Apaches during a raid on his stepfather's ranch on January 27, 1861. A combination of bad evidence and local prejudice had led to Cochise's Chaconan Apache band being blamed for the raid, and the young, inexperienced Bascom was tasked by his superiors at Fort Buchanan to find and retrieve the boy, using whatever force he felt was necessary. Bascom confronted Cochise on Monday, February 4th, demanding the return of Felix. When Cochise, quite sincerely, said he did not have him but was willing to try and find out who did, Bascom decided he didn't believe him and declared that Cochise and his family were now all hostages. This led to the the cut-the-tent action sequence, and Cochise, now seriously angry, decided he had had enough. Meanwhile, Bascom and his men had pulled back to the relatively more secure area of the Apache Pass Butterfield Mail Station. If this were an episode of Star Trek, this is the point where you would hear Major Barrett Roddenberry's voice saying, And now for the conclusion. 
Over the evening of February 4th, the signal fires that Cochise and his band had lit produced the desired effect. Namely, more Apaches began to arrive. Among them was Francisco, a White Mountains Apache leader who often raided with Cochise in Mexico. Soon on scene was also Mangas Coloradas, Cochise's father-in-law. Now, Mangas Coloradas, you might remember from his periodic appearances, had originally proclaimed nothing but love for the Americans and a desire to use their help to destroy the Mexicans. So, as one source puts it, Cochise might have expected him to give advice along the lines of, Okay, cool your hills. Let's go down and talk. There's no reason to blow all of this out of proportion. But that's not what he said. You see, supposedly, Mongus Colorados had recently ridden into the Santa Rita de Cobre mines to tell the miners there that there was better veins to be had further west, in the territory of the Yavapais. He was being quite truthful about this, but the men were not willing to listen, thinking it was a trick to get rid of him. Instead, they took Mangas Coloradas, tied him to a tree, and whipped him. Now, Edwin R. Sweeney, a biographer of both Mangas Coloradas and Cochise, disputes that this ever happened and believes it to be a later fabrication. However, what cannot be disputed is the fact that the great old warrior decided to join with Cochise, though the reason might not be something so dramatic, but maybe as simple as the same steadily eroding American-Apache relationships that had put his son-in-law on edge. I will also note that of the Badankahi warriors that showed up with Mangas Coloradas was one whose Apache name basically translated to the one who yawns, or yawner. We know him better today as Geronimo. The next morning, so February 5th, Apaches numbering in the hundreds could be seen in the high spots above the station. They dispersed, however, and an Apache approached the station carrying a white flag. Cochise wanted to talk, he said, on the stage road, roughly 100 yards from the station. Bascom agreed to the parlay after stipulating that Cochise would come with just a few men and everyone would be unarmed. The army officer proceeded with Johnny Ward acting as the interpreter again, with Sergeant Daniel Robinson, one of the main chroniclers of the event, and one Sergeant William Smith, who carried the white flag of truce. The meeting was brief and to the point. Cochise said, and I'm obviously paraphrasing here, let my family go. Bascom said, give us the boy first. Cochise said, we do not have the boy. Maybe give me a few days and I can find him. Bascom said, no boy, no family, no deal. Now, the area was lousy with Apaches, something evident to both Robinson and Bascom, but they did not bring it up during this parlay. This is often pointed to as evidence of the bravery of Bascom, because historians feel they have to occasionally throw him a bone. It was looking to be an unfruitful, tense, but still peaceable parlay until the three Butterfield employees, stage manager Charles Culver, his assistant Robert Welch, or Walsh, there seems to be some disagreement on what his last name actually was, and stage driver James Wallace decided to get involved. Remember from last week that both Culver and Wallace in particular felt they were on good terms with Cochise, 
and they wanted to end all this nonsense. So, despite warnings from Bascom to stay back, the three approached the parlay spot. And this is where things pretty much went downhill. Once again, the exact order of events is not entirely clear, but the presence of these three men upended the not-so-stable-to-begin-with apple cart. One source says that Wallace was beckoned over by Juanita, one of the two women of Cochise's band that the army had run into when they first arrived at Apache Pass. Wallace was pretty sweet on her, and so he eagerly went to stand near where she was at a spot located next to a ravine some distance from the parlay site. When he approached, however, she is said to have grabbed and held him as warriors sprung up out of the ravine. However, other sources simply say that the three employees simply went too close to the ravine where warriors were hiding, which led to them springing up and trying to seize the men. Wallace was captured. Culver and Welsh managed to evade the attackers and head back toward the station, with Bascom and his group following close on their heels. Shots rang out, from both the soldiers still at the mail station and from the Apaches nearby which Bascom estimated to be as high as 500, though this is undoubtedly an exaggerated figure. Of course, it could have just looked that way as the young second lieutenant ran for his life. Culver was shot in the back, but others managed to drag him to safety. Welsh was not so lucky and was killed. Though there is some disagreement, most accounts say that he was shot in the head by a spooked soldier after being mistaken for a charging Apache. Yikes. Sergeant Smith, who was carrying the white flag, was wounded in the leg. Because of the presence of so many warriors ready to spring into action, it's possible Cochise had planned this parlay as a chance to take Baskin himself hostage and then exchange him for his family. We can't say for certain because, once again, the arrival of the Butterfield employees threw everything up in the air. What we can say for certain is that Wallace was definitely now Cochise's prisoner. And he wouldn't be the last one. After an intense night for Bascom and his men of seeing more glowing fires on the hilltops and hearing the Apache songs and maybe even mournful wails for warriors killed in the latest skirmish, the sun rose on Wednesday, February 6th. Sergeant Robinson volunteered to lead yet another group back to the spring to procure water for the animals and the men, which was insanely brave of him, as the spring was only accessed through a narrow ravine that just screamed, sight for an ambush. But whether he just didn't care, or was still trying to preserve some peace, or was playing a longer game, Cochise let this group pass in peace. He did appear on the ridge above the Butterfield Station about midday, now leading a captive Wallace who was bound with a rope around his neck. Cochise again demanded the release of his family, saying he was willing to trade Wallace and 16 government mules that his people had happened to um, acquire, but Bascom again refused, reiterating that their release was conditional only upon the return of Felix Ward. There are some apocryphal accounts of one of Bascom's men telling him at this point to give up this demand already, but there's as much reason to believe this never happened as there is to believe it did. Seeing that Bascom wouldn't budge, 
Cochise disappeared again over the hillside with the unfortunate Wallace. Later that afternoon, a westbound stagecoach pulled into the station, a little bewildered at the presence of soldiers and their improvised breastworks. This stage didn't realize it, but they had been incredibly lucky. The rocks and hay bales that they had unexpectedly encountered on the road on their way in were actually unfinished barricades to stop them for a planned Apache attack. They'd only been saved because they were running a few hours ahead of schedule, and the Apaches had gotten distracted. So remember everyone, it always pays to show up early. However, what had distracted the Apaches was unfortunately a slower moving wagon train that was ascending from the Sulphur Springs Valley up into Apache Pass, carrying flour towards Las Cruces in New Mexico. Unaware of the violence now erupting in the Chiricahuas, the wagon train was unprepared for what happened next. We don't know if the Apaches attacked suddenly, or maybe lured them in with false tales of wanting to trade for food, but we do know that Cochise's men attacked, and attacked brutally, roughly two miles west of the mail station. The wagon train had roughly a dozen men, three of which were Americans, the rest Mexicans. Considering only the Americans of any value when it came to negotiations, Cochise's orders were to spare them and kill the rest. The Mexicans were tied to wagon wheels and underwent a particularly gruesome form of torture where they were tied heads down over a slow fire so that their brains gradually roasted. After that, all the wagons were burned. That night, Cochise also had Wallace write a note to Bascom, where he informed the army officer that he now had four hostages. He also promised that if Bascom would treat his hostages well, Cochise would do the same. This note was then sent with a warrior to be left where it could be easily found. Now, when this note was actually found is a matter of considerable debate, as Bascom reported that he saw it that same night, but others saying it wasn't found for at least a couple more days. Though author Terry Mort says it doesn't matter when the note was found, because it's doubtful that Bascom would have believed that Cochise suddenly had three more prisoners. The officer was still thinking that Cochise would not dare harm his hostages, if he had them at all, while his family was still in captivity. It turned out to be a serious miscalculation on his part. Cochise was not done seeking hostages. He knew of another incoming Butterfield stage, this one coming in from Tucson. This particular stage reached the area of the ambush on the Mexican train sometime after midnight on Thursday, February 7th, so only two days and some change from when Cochise had cut his way out of the tent. Without warning, the Apaches attacked, killing at least one mule and wounding another. The stage's driver, a man named King Lyons, jumped down and started cutting the dead animals loose, taking a bullet that shattered his leg in the process. Passenger William Buckley, who was a Butterfield superintendent, jumped from the stage to grab Lyons. Fellow passenger 2nd Lieutenant John Rogers Cook, son of Philip St. George Cook, who had led the Mormon battalion, by the way, returned fire toward where he could see the muzzle flashes of their attackers. Lyons was dragged into the stage, and Buckley, having finished cutting off the dead or wounded animals, whipped the remaining mules as fast as they would go. What happened next was like 
something out of a Western movie. Seriously. The Apaches had made a nearby small bridge impassable by removing the planks and leaving only the stone abutments. Whether he didn't see the bridge was out until it was too late, or he decided to chance the physics of it all, Buckley did not pull up on the reins, but whipped the mules into going as fast as they possibly could. Remarkably, amid Apache gunfire and dodging around large rocks placed in the roadway to impede their progress, Buckley got the coach and animals going fast enough that they were literally able to jump the broken bridge, the stage's axles grinding on the abutments as it landed. They pulled into Apache Pass around 2 a.m., beat up and exhausted, but still alive. Everyone now expected the worst. Except, the worst never came. In fact, for all of February 7th, there was no sign of Apache anywhere in the area. They all seemed to have vanished. We know now that Cochise had decided to take the women and children of his band and move them south into other parts of the Chiricahua Mountains to avoid future hostilities or army patrols that might be sent out. But there was no doubt in his mind that he and his warriors would go back, and it would not be a pretty sight when they did. For Bascom and his men, this reprieve gave them time to think about their situation. Though it was a tacit admission of defeat, the young second lieutenant determined he needed help. He had wounded civilians that needed a doctor, and he needed reinforcements. Besides, other stagecoaches needed to know to be on their guard. A.B. Culver, a passenger on the stage the night before, and the brother of the Apache Pass station manager, Charles Culver, volunteered to lead a group in breaking out to Tucson and Fort Buchanan with the news. Though we know that they had nothing to fear, they had no way of knowing it, and spent a tense evening sneaking out of Apache Pass, taking care to wrap the hooves of their mules in blankets and walking alongside them to cut down on potential noise. Most of this party would reach Fort Buchanan on the evening of February 8th, while Culver actually reached Tucson around the same time. Borrowing fresh mounts from other Butterfield stations, he had made the 125-mile trip in a shockingly fast 24 hours. In Tucson, he made contact with William S. Aury, brother of the Granville Aury we met way back in episode 29 as he went to relieve the crab expedition down in Sonora. Aury would send away to Fort Breckenridge for help, and would set out himself shortly with a stage and four heavenly armed companions. En route to Apache Pass, they would link up with two companies of dragoons led by Lieutenant Isaac Moore. Meanwhile, at Fort Buchanan, Assistant Surgeon Bernard J.D. Irwin volunteered to head out to help the wounded with Bascom, eventually setting off to Apache Pass with the men who had brought the news, plus a dozen or so volunteers and at least one former dragoon-slash-civilian named James Graydon. These relief companies had to deal with a sudden and remarkably heavy snowstorm as they made their way back to Apache Pass. For those of you who do not live in Arizona, yes, I said snowstorm. Believe it or not, in the higher elevations of southeastern Arizona, those occasionally do happen. This storm actually put Bascom a bit at ease on the morning of Friday, February 8th, only four days removed from the initial meeting with Cochise. 
Scouts showed that the snow was undisturbed, which meant no Apache were nearby, which was good because the men and animals needed water again, which meant venturing to the spring. The ever-daring Sergeant Daniel Robinson helped lead this group, making, by my count, the third time that he had made the trip to this very possible ambush site. The difference is that, unlike the last time when the animals were sent in shifts, Bascom sent them all at once, a blunder that he would come to regret. Still, much like the last time, the animals were led to the spring without the slightest hint of danger from the Apache, and all were eventually watered and made ready for the return journey. And that's when the attack happened. Cochise, still angry and wanting his family back, had planned a two-pronged strategy to attack the Americans and achieve his goals. The plan was to attack the animals at the spring, so Bascom would have to peel off soldiers to relieve the men there, and then Cochise would frontally attack the now-weakened defenses at the mail station. The Apaches suddenly swarmed around the spring, leading to an intense firefight. Robinson himself was wounded in the leg, so much so that he was forced to the ground and was firing from a rather exposed position. Fortunately, though his coat received a few holes, he was not further injured. Unfortunately, King Lyons, the stage driver who had been wounded a little more than a day ago and who had come to oversee the Butterfield mules, was shot and killed in this fight. Hearing the gunfire, 2nd Lieutenant Cook was dispatched to help the men at the spring. This is what Cochise had been waiting for. Seeing those men go off, more Apache suddenly appeared to attack the station. Unfortunately, the diversion had not let off enough men, and those still with Bascom were able to drive the Apache back after wounding several and killing at least three of them. Sweeney also says it was Bascom's quick action to move soldiers to directly blunt this attack that helped stave it off. So, you know, one more point for the second lieutenant among a sea of demerits. At the spring, the Apache did manage to run off every last mule, 56 of them, including the ones owned by the Butterfield line. The stiff resistance there also forced the Apache to cut off their assault, Instead, they went towards the soldiers' right flank and achieved the heights over the spring. It was impossible to know, but this really was the end of the siege or Cochise's attempts to take his family back by force. After this, many of the Jaconans started heading south to Fronteras to spread news of what had occurred during the past week. With the soldiers from Forts Breckenridge and Buchanan starting to come in, the Apache realized they were outmanned and outgunned. There would be plenty of fighting left to come in the war, but for now, the battle was over. Though, there was still one last bloody epilogue to play out before we can close the books on the Bascom Affair. Following this battle, Bascom did, well, nothing. Assuming he was still under siege and bottled up in the station, he had his men simply stay put. We can't really blame him for this because, according to his understanding, surely Cochise would come back to negotiate or attack to get his family. But the warrior never showed up. Aside from some scouts in the area, the Apache appeared to have simply vanished. 
so Bascom waited for reinforcements before making his next move. Irwin, the surgeon from Fort Buchanan, and his small company made it to Apache Pass on Sunday, February 10th, so just shy of a week of when Cochise had cut his way out of Bascom's tent. En route, they had found and captured three Apaches coming up from Mexico with stolen cattle. These three were most likely Coyotero Apache, ironically enough the same band that had captured Felix Ward in the first place. But as the Americans were never that careful in distinguishing Apache from each other, they threw these three in with Cochise's family, who were still captive. Lieutenant Moore and his dragoons didn't arrive until February 14th. Once he was on scene, Lieutenant Moore was now the ranking officer. And over the next few days, Moore and Bascom would send out multiple scouting parties, which found no trace of Apache still in the area. But on February 18th, so two weeks from Cut the Tent, Aury and Irwin spotted buzzards circling overhead. They investigated and found, not far from the road and near where the Mexican stage had been attacked, four brutally mutilated bodies, riddled with lance wounds. It was Wallace and the three other Americans captured from the Mexican stage. But the mutilation was so bad that Wallace could only be identified from the gold fillings in his teeth. Why Cochise had done this, instead of keeping them as a bargaining chip, is still an open question, with the answer really only known to him. It's possible he saw that negotiations with Bascom, who demanded Cochise produce a boy he didn't have, would go nowhere. It's possible that he simply lost his temper after negotiations and his final attack on the station failed to recover his family. It's also possible that it was revenge for the warriors slain since the conflict started. But no matter the reason, it's apparent the four were massacred right after the attack on the station and then had been deliberately left out to be found. And the death didn't stop there. Infuriated by this carnage, the Americans marched their Apache prisoners to the very spot where they had buried those mutilated bodies on the next day, February 19th. If Cochise could kill his hostages, they were free to kill theirs. These orders came from Moore, and to his credit, Bascom objected, but Moore was the ranking officer now and said that those were his orders. The Apache men, now numbering six, were told that they were to be hanged. They reportedly responded by asking to be shot instead. That request was refused. Only one is said to have begged for his life. Another, possibly Cochise's brother, Coyotura, is said to have gone to his execution dancing and singing while remarking that it was okay, he was satisfied because he had killed two Mexicans in the past month. The group also asked for some whiskey before being executed. Another request that was denied. Then ropes were put over the boughs of four oak trees and, in Robinson's words, quote, The Indians placed under them were hoisted so high by the infantry that even the wolves could not touch them. End quote. Possibly due to Apache taboos about death, these bodies would remain hanging from those trees until they became mere skeletons, a grim reminder of the cost of the Bascom affair. The popular story is that there was some disagreement about what to do with Cochise's wife and his young sons, 
so the soldiers played a game of cards to determine their fate, which is why they were not hanged. Though this story is generally considered apocryphal and coming from less than stellar sources. Dotesse and her sons were kept for some time at Fort Buchanan and then released because, incredibly, though they knew they had someone important to Cochise, no one seemed to realize they actually had his wife and children in their custody. Once back at the fort, Bascom would write his report of the incident, but would omit several details, probably trying to cover his own tale for how things played out. He did not mention, for example, that Cochise had literally escaped from his tent after Bascom had tried to take him hostage, or that the chief had been wounded. He neglected to say his own men most likely killed the assistant stage manager, Welsh, after the second attempt at parley. He also said he got Wallace's note the night of, when it might have been a couple days later, nor does he mention the sending of all the animals to the spring at once had been his own disastrous order. Bascom made a number of mistakes. Probably the biggest was ordering his troops to fire on Cochise as he was escaping, or an hour later when he came back to negotiate. And most historians love to rag on Bascom for how events went down. Early state historian Thomas Farish wrote, quote, Bascom's stupidity and ignorance probably cost 5,000 American lives and the destruction of hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of property. End quote. But remember that Farish is also working off of the assumption that Cochise was friendly and loving to all Americans before Bascom showed up. But we know better, and Cochise must also take some responsibility, as he was most likely duplicitous during the second parlay, intending to kidnap someone to even the leverage out, and his decision to kill off his hostages is still something of a baffling one. So the whole incident was a massive collection of mistakes on both sides. There is no doubt, however, that the Bascom affair turned Cochise from what would only be described in modern terms as a frenemy into a full-blown adversary. As Sweeney puts it, quote, To Cochise, the hanging of Coyuntura and his two nephews meant war. End quote. Early state historian James H. McClintock wrote, quote, in later years, Cochise told Miles Wood that before this, he had killed only Mexicans. Thereafter, he made war upon Americans as well. End quote. Now, you may be asking yourself, what of the young man, Felix Ward, whose kidnapping started all this? His stepfather, Johnny Ward, would be killed in 1867 by Apache, with his grieving mother dying shortly thereafter from ill health. Both assumed the boy was dead, and they never saw him after that fateful January morning. But, remarkably, he wasn't dead. And this is not the last time he'll show up in our story. Because Felix, later going by the name Mickey Free, will play a prominent supporting role in the story of the Apache Wars, which his kidnapping had helped kick off. But that is a story for another time. Join me next week as we watch Arizona grapple not only with Apache hostilities, but with the effects of another war altogether. Because, just a couple months after the Bascom Affair, Confederates would attack Fort Sumner in North Carolina, which led to soldiers and civilian alike 
even in as far removed a place as Arizona, having to choose a side. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Goodbye.